Hello and welcome to America in Context Live. It's about 1.40 on the East Coast. Uh, it's about 10.40 on the West Coast. Uh, so on today's show, we're going to be talking about a subject that is going to... Um, some people are not going to be happy with it. I'll just say that. It may raise a few eyebrows, but it is something that needs to be addressed. It's that the concept of American exceptionalism, the term itself needs to be retired. Now I'm writing this, I'm saying this because a few weeks ago on the heels of the high holy days in the Jewish faith, uh, I saw an unfortunate reminder that anti-Semitism in the United States is alive and well. A uh, vehicle owned by a federal law enforcement agency had a poster of Hitler inside the dashboard of the car. This is in Brooklyn, New York, um, which I mean, shocking anywhere. It's especially shocking here. Uh, and, and it's it, it's really appalling, but it's, it's frankly not that surprising. Uh, in fact, the Anti-Defamation League found that uh, recently that 24 million Americans foster anti-Semitic attitudes, which is a direct result of a nationalist and populist uh, identity and thought process. So these, 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 these changes or these not necessarily changes, but these this mentality is as a result of of populist leaders becoming more and more prominent around the globe, from members of our own government in the United States, uh, all around the world, from Brazil to India um, and you know the UK. So the United States is clearly, obviously, no exception. Uh, the United States throughout its history has targeted marginalized groups. That's no surprise to anyone. Uh, as communities of colors, color, religious minorities, uh, ethnic minorities, women, etc., they can all attest uh, that this is nothing new. In fact, hate is as American and ingrained in our identity as apple pie. Uh, so continuing, and, and stories kind of continue to surface from the U.S.-Mexico border to treatments in the troubled teen industry, uh, they're all very inhumane. And pundits go on cable television, uh, and say things like, this is not who we are. But let's be honest, this is exactly who we are. Uh, and the sooner that we acknowledge that, the sooner that we can fix that problem. Now, what's really a very positive thing about the American identity and part of our strengths is that our resting pulse is discontent, that every day we thrive to be better than we were yesterday, given that is has a different meaning to different people regardless on what side of the aisle you are on the, excuse me, regardless of what side of the aisle you happen to be on, uh, your definition is different. But this idea of America first, um, that we're number one uh, without actually showing anything for it, uh, that is only emboldened by catchy buzzword and populist campaign slogans, uh, really do not bode well to uh, progress and adhering to the values that we stand for. Ultimately, we do have a few things that the United States is number one in, but they're not exactly things you want to be proud of. Uh, mass incarceration, for example. We lead uh, the world in COVID deaths. According to Johns Hopkins University, almost 218,000 people about the equivalent of the population of Tacoma, Washington, 
in its entirety currently have died from the virus. And the number of cases of, from the virus in the United States is 7.9 million. That's 618,000 more than the next leading country, which is India, which also happens to have a populist leader. And, you know, we can get into all different kinds of issues here and talk about how there is a problem and that we need to really own our problems in order to fix them. So joining me to discuss is Francesca Fiorentini. She's the host of News Broke on AJ, on AJ Plus, the Bituation Room podcast, and she hosted the Red, White, and Blue, and Who, excuse me, yes. uh, special <laughs> on MSNBC. Uh, she's joining me now. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Andy. I uh, love this topic. So important. I'm glad we're digging into it. Well, so you've, you've actually spoken about this a bit uh, before, the idea of American exceptionalism and that that is, um, you know, undermining our values in and of itself. Uh, can you can you speak on like what's your take? Yeah, I mean, just responding to this title, right? Is American exceptionalism un-American? I love it because I never really thought about it that way. Um, I feel like American exceptionalism is one of those myths, like Pocahontas. Uh, you know, like Thanksgiving, um, like, uh, yeah, hey, uh, slavery was going to end anyway, and civil rights were totally going to happen by themselves. White people were definitely going to give black people the right to vote eventually. It's like one of those myths and that you are taught as a child, which basically is American exceptionalism, because we have to sort of get our definitions right, is that the U.S. is the best country in the world. And by best, we mean the, the most democratic. It's got the democracy. You got the freedom of speech. You got the freedom of assembly and the other freedoms that Amy Coney Barrett couldn't mention. Um, so those are, are the ways that we sort of herald the de democratic aspect of the United States. But then we actually break it down and we're on the cusp of an election and seeing all the ways that voter suppression is horribly rampant, that the Electoral College, which is a vestige of slavery in and of itself, still exists in the year 2020, even the ways that we are exceptional, which supposedly was our democracy, is falling apart and is more laid bare as being broken and actually not true. Um, and I think to your point about COVID and, you know, the fact that I think it's ironic, the fact that we are so exceptional now under this pandemic points to the fact that we've been so up our own butts, if you will, about our exceptionalism and how we're so great. Like, but we're the best. Like, why do we have the debt? We, we're the best. We're the best. We're the best. It's actually that we've been letting it slide, that we are so tied to the myth. We aren't actually doing the hard work to make sure that our country doesn't slide into populism, doesn't have unfettered runaway capitalism, which inhibits a response to a global pandemic to take care of people. Right. So we're so tied to the myth, man. We're like a, we're like an old rapper from the eighties or something, you know, we're like an old, you know, uh, who's just washed up. We're like a very David Hasselhoff country where it's like, but we used to be like the tough guy and whatever. And now, um, we're not, <laughs> uh, we're washed up. Yeah. I think of, um, the, the movie Napoleon dynamite, um, and uncle Rico, He's like, oh, I was not, you know, I was really great on the <laughs> football team. And that is like, he 
he peaked in he peaked in high school. Totally, um, America peaked in high school. Exactly, and you know, I think that there's a, a lot of our values, and you know, if you don't interpret them, you know, as literal, uh, the creed there, this this want to be better, this this um, you know, the idea of the American dream to you know want the best for you and your family is a universal great thing that people want, but, you know, getting there, um, had the, that definition, um, trying to put that into something tangible is where people have really kind of gotten lost. Uh, I want to, uh, um, bring up a figure here from U S news and world report. The U S ranks number seven in the world overall on quality of life, uh, excuse me, uh, overall, but on quality of life, uh, as of 2019, the U.S. sits at number 17. It's really kind of curious where that reading will go from there, you know, after this this pandemic. Uh, it, it, to, it is to be said that there was this this pandemic, there is no it's unprecedented. There was no good way to respond to it. But there there is a way to, you know, make a bad situation worse. So. Yeah. You know, I, I will I will say that that there is you know there's no good way that this could have been handled, but the, the way that the administration has has dealt with this has made a bad but, situation. But the out. thing that the the president has doubled down on is this idea of American exceptionalism. I mean, you can imagine, right? If and when China takes over, oh my God, can it be soon enough? Because I'm very tired. Um, but no, they will have Chinese exceptionalism, which to them would be, look, we are an economic powerhouse in the world. And sure, there are giant camps where we have our Muslim minority in, but like that's Chinese exceptionalism. You Exceptionalism in the world is all about hegemony. And it's all about saying, sure, the United States has toppled democratically elected governments all over the world. And yeah, there was Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, torture and, and whatnot, but we are the good guys. So it's sort of positioning yourself as always being the good guys. And the problem with that is you're never critical uh, of what, of your actual country. Um, and you never get like, if you're at the, if what is good, it, it reminds me of the, you know, the sketch, the, the, are we the baddies sketch? I'm gonna forget someone in the comments, remind me what, uh, what the sketch group was, but it's like, are we the baddies? Like the U.S. needs to stop and be like, wait, are we? Are we the baddies? Like, are we on the wrong side of history right now? But when you consider yourself exceptional, you're kind of given that free ride to never have to in interrogate what you're doing. Um, and I think to your point initially about the anti-Semitism, perfect example, because the United States was always like, well, huh. Well, we, you know, Hitler didn't conquer the U.S. We stopped the World War II. We stopped Hitler kind of late, very late. Um, but we position ourselves as being the, the, the heroes in World War II. And that's sort of where the American exceptionalism starts. But then we don't turn around and see all the ways that whether it's black Americans, immigrants, and, and yes, Jewish Americans, the ways that we're allowing the same bigotry anti-semitism to infect and fascism to infect our own country so it's like you know uh but we're we're exempt from that right because we're the goodies 
I mean, there's the what's the 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 saying? Uh, for those who don't understand history, are bound to repeat it, uh, and that you know that that says a lot. Um, you know, I'm 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 sure there are people in the comments who are, you know, calling us, um, you know, anti-American communists. Nah, they're all cool. Um, yeah, they're um, all cool. I'm, I'm, I bet, I bet. Uh, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you if you you can't be exceptional unless you can look at your own faults and try, at least give it a solid attempt to address those issues. Um, and until we say, you know what, we're great, but we're not that great, or there's a lot of room for improvement, we could do better in this area. That's when things will turn up, and. You know, let's talk about COVID for a second, because sure. for for lack for for whatever it's worth, COVID has pointed out uh, a lot of systematic inequalities that were obvious to a lot of people. But the people that were kind of in in the in the that are in the seat to make a, a difference and change those policies are finally starting to recognize that that's an issue. So there is some level of positive positivity there 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 are a lot of problems don't don't get me wrong but there there is a, some steps there what what's your take on that i mean when it comes to covid you know joe biden had a town hall last night at the same time that trump had a town hall and i was was watching biden cuz you know mental health um and he had some really cogent and great answers to the covid question what he didn't say, and what has been striking to me on all sides of the aisle during this entire pandemic, is he didn't talk about the rest of the world. He didn't say, let's look to South Korea, let's look to Germany, let's look to um, other countries that have successfully kept their death rates and their infection rates lower. Let's join with the rest of the world. Again, this is a global pandemic. We don't have, God, we don't have borders. You want to talk about borders? Like, yeah, yeah put up some borders, build a wall against a coronavirus. Bro, you can't. And so what what you know letting go of our american exceptionalism means is actually embracing a, a certain amount of internationalism and that means learning from the other people we share this world with that means coming together and doing things like the paris climate agreement and going even farther than that but again if you want to always be on the top of the heap you don't even have to prove it with like better infrastructure schools you know healthcare whatever just get a lot of guns huge military and just enforce the idea that you're the best by, you know, aggressing against the rest of the world. Problem is we're now in a ton of debt because of all of those wars. You can't really sustain constant war all the time just to enforce your superiority. So here we are. It's a perfect moment for a little bit of internationalism, Andy. And like, man, I'm struggling to find it. I'm struggling to find out where the U.S., you know, is actually looking at other countries is meeting with global. I want the CDC to meet with the CDC equivalents of the rest of the world. Wouldn't that make sense? Yeah. So two things, two things I want to point out there, just uh, a little points of clarification in terms of, you know, some, some of the Trump people say, you know, the, the president closed the border there, the, the, the flight flights to China um, at some point, which, needed to be done, which was a decision that was a, it was a good decision. However, it was far too late 
for that to happen. In fact, uh, numerous reports suggest that in the first major hotspot in the country, New York City, the major the the cases came from Europe, not Asia. Right. So I, well, and the other thing was, let's just sorry, let's just be clear. He stopped travel from China, but only for Chinese nationals. Only if you had, if you were like a Chinese national, not if you were an American, not if you were a Chinese American, not if you, which doesn't make any sense because once again, COVID is colorblind. COVID doesn't care where you were born, where you come from. So we allowed everyone who was all in China to come back in the US. You should stop anyone. Doesn't matter where they were born. Doesn't matter what passport they hold. They shouldn't be allowed to come back from this epicenter to the US. So it made no sense. No, it didn't. It really. I agree. I was telling. I was telling a, a friend of mine at the time. It's. It's like if your ultimate goal was to, you know, curb the virus from getting to the United States, it, you can't have anyone come back. You you have to just say no one's coming in or out. Right. Like exactly. Until this is over. We're no one. No one in. No one out. Uh, but you know the the selectivity of what that is 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 just. You know, it's it's the American businessman will cause a fit <laughs> if he's not allowed to come back from China. Uh, uh, I mean, that's that's ultimately what it was. Speaking of which, a recent report from the World Economic Forum has suggested, and this was before the pandemic, that the U.S. This is 2016, 2017, that, that the U.S. slipped to number three in global competitive in its global competitiveness, economically speaking. Uh, so, you know, this this kind of this trade war and I, I spoke about this in a previous episode, but this trade war with China is is really doing a lot more harm than it is good, regardless of what way you look at this. Like from a trade perspective, it's not great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not helping, uh, you know, farmers and workers in the United States. It's actually doing the opposite. One of the major reasons that the United States has made concessions uh, with China on trade is because they're one of the North Korea's few uh, trading partners and keeping them at bay is important. So while that's not an economic incentive, that's kind of a national security incentive. Right. Uh, and, you know, that that is also rather concerning that the that the White House, or the president in particular, doesn't seem to grasp that not these all of these relationships are purely transactional um sure. and that 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 really is something that you know just makes this situation um that much worse i mean uh, i think it's it's also the trade thing is well, that gets a whole other conversation because the fact of the matter is you can't have decades of neoliberalism and global you know global capital flying all over the country jobs you know, abandoning the United States like a, you know, like a sinking ship uh, and have all kinds of consensus between Wall Street and the government, left and right sides of the aisle. Remember, the only time the Republicans stood up for Obama was when he was trying to pass the TPP. Oh, Orrin Hash cried. Boy, did he cry. He cried. It was like, oh, your president wants you to pass the TPP. Democrats were like, we don't know if more free trade policies is what this country needs. Then you get Trump, who's like, well, we're exceptional. We're the best. We can make everything here. Well, bro, with what? We can't make anything here. This is you. You're living. You're you're living in an unreality. You you don't live in the year in the year 2020. 
Now you want to go back to like coal fired, you know, coal powered plants and everything like that. Like, you know how much work it would take to get back to wherever he wants us to get back to 60s, 70s industrialization with these antiquated, outdated um, forms of industry. Like, so all of this selling you on American manufacturing is another way of selling American exceptionalism that is completely out of step with reality. Now, that doesn't mean that you say, well, all of our jobs go abroad. You can have some amount of national industry. That doesn't mean national industry and the striving to keep jobs here and good jobs here is bad. But you can't go about it in this bizarre xenophobic way that negates this consensus that's been around for decades. Yeah, I mean, you you could say these these towns that have historically been built on these you know, as, as for for uh, mining coal, hey, right. these 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 guys have a certain set of skills, and this set set of skills could easily be transferable into the manufacturing of solar panels or the manufacturing of wind turbines, right, um, or things like that. It's 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 an adaptation with the with the times, and that you know, cities around the country recognize that. If they stay with one, you know, industry as the dominant industry within that city, or as the only major industry within that city, then they're banking on their they're almost in their entire identity on one thing. Absolutely. As we as we've seen, um, just like as an example with Detroit. I mean, you know, it was once one of the epicenters, uh, if not the epicenter of U.S. commerce because of its because of the auto industry. Uh, you know, when there was a downturn in the auto industry, they've really they progressively less th- lost their place um, in the uh, powerhouse of of uh, the American economy, which is which is unfortunate. But part of mitigating that problem, which a lot of cities, especially uh, in Texas and the South, um, and increasingly in the Rust Belt, have said, you know what, we can't like we have an industry that our city has been built on, but we can't rely on our entire identity being attached to that. I think someone said import substitution industrialization, which never worked well in Latin America, Beluga Blues said, and that's like what you're saying is exactly right. Just as, you know, you know, a so-called banana republic, you know, enforcing a single economy or a single industry economy on any, whether it's a, you know, an entire country for export, or if it's a city in this country, like Detroit, like the auto industry, like you're saying, that's not good. That doesn't work. Um, We need mixed economies. We need local economies, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I do want to make one thing absolutely clear because I am fairly certain that there's going to be a pushback that says, oh, this was, you know, some super left-wing liberal, you know, talking points that, that this is not, this is not a partisan issue. Like this is the basic fundamental uh, American creed of growth, of innovation, of, of democracy, of, really building out fundamentally where everybody on both sides of the aisle at least claim that's what they stand for. And 
So we really shouldn't be looking at this as a partisan conversation, but rather getting back or embracing the values that we claim that we have. Um, and, you know, I really hope that that's the discussion that comes out of this. Um, I really hope, knowing Twitter, I doubt that'll be the case. No, but- I think there are some smart, smart people in the comments. And I think, I think folks are ready to move on to a new conversation. The question is, is that I think we need a leader. And I, I, I hope Joe Biden is this leader, but we all need to be that leader uh, who says enough with American exceptionalism. Like we need, in fact, it's not a point of weakness to learn from other people on the planet. It's not a point of weakness if you move money from the military into infrastructure. That's not weakness, that's strength. It's a point of strength to have a record number of college graduates. It's a point of strength to have limited debt, you know, individual debt. It's a point of strength when you have homeowners in this country. I mean, God, like, you know, folks of our generation and younger are can will not be able to own a home the way we're going. It is a point of strength to not have massive income inequality. So that is where we have, you know, I think the, the real question is, what are the values, right? As you're saying, do you value strength? Is it about strength? Is like, sorry, military strength. Is it military strength and being able to say, I'm right, you're wrong. And if you say that I'm wrong, that I'm going to roll up a tank in your town. Is that, you know, is that what it is? Or is well, it real safety? You know, is it real, you know, a community that doesn't get torn apart from climate change, economic inequality, you know, all the things. I want to get to climate change in a second, but just for a point of clarity that that there is historically with there has been huge economic innovation that's come along with war from in World War II, for example. Sure. Um, So that has that has played a very positive in some respects. It has played a positive role, but that that was a very different kind of. No, but Andy, it's so, it's such a good point, dude, because I'm sorry, I'm going to do to you and and forgive me, that's the California in me. But this is the thing is I was looking back on, you know, you could really compare COVID to World War II. And wow, we manufactured so much and the country pulled together and people, you know, took metal off of their like, you know, homes in order to send it in for the war effort. And they were happy to pay their taxes. We all banded together. But that's because it was for war and beating, you know, and like going into battle, like, which is, was, I'm not saying it wasn't valiant, but if we are currently in a war, which we are against not a foreign enemy, but the coronavirus, then where is that same innovation? Where is that same pulling together as a nation to actually get out of this and to help people? I I think that there is a lot actually going on um, uh, there, but some of the policies coming from Washington have really undermined um, the, the ability, effort. the efforts to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are actually kind of pulling their weight. They, there's something they did a few, a uh, couple of weeks ago. No, like about, I guess about a month ago that really surprised me that they were uh, it, it, coming up with a monoclonal antibody treatment. They were sharing trade secrets, which is, Right. Supposedly we don't do, but <laughs> so, I mean, some, some people are really stepping up. Members of very, of communities are stepping up to help, uh, you know, other people. Um, 
people are really trying to help out their you know local restaurants and try and keep them in business so yeah. the, there there's a lot of very positives coming out but the support from washington to an extent is just not there for sure um just as it's just it's just not there so i do want to say that there are there is clearly a push from people looking past politics working together to come up with a solution, but it is nowhere near on par with what it should be uh, or in other points throughout our history. And, and the stakes are just as high. Someone's asking that people flee to the U.S. Why, if it's so dismal, the U.S. has come to the aid of countless countries? Well, I, I would dispute maybe that we've come to the aid of countless countries, but I do think it is interesting to say, well, hey, if America's so bad, why do people want to come here? And you have to look at where they are coming from in, let's talk about our hemisphere, right? We look at Central America and Central American migrants, which make up a huge number of the migrants coming into the United States and have historically, um, there is a great documentary called The Harvest of Empire by Juan Gonzalez of Democracy Now! And he's the you know journalist, great journalist. And it basically says that all of the places that the United States has helped overthrow and coups and in supposedly in service of democracy, um, the economies being forced on those countries, all of that has meant for waves and waves and waves of immigration into the United States. It hasn't been because things are bad in their country in a vacuum. It's because the United States has helped made things so terrible in those countries, right? You've got, you know, for example, you every war that the United States has ever been involved in is closely followed by a huge wave of migration from the country we were at war in. So in the Korean War, you had then a huge migration of Koreans. In the Vietnam War, you then had a huge migration of Vietnamese. We've done this over and over and over again. And of course, in Central America in the 80s and the many different wars that we were involved in um, on smaller levels, uh, that then came home to roost. So sadly, yes, I'm not saying this is a bad country. I'm not saying this is El Salvador at all. But why is El Salvador, El Salvador the way it is now, right? And a lot of that has to do with U.S. policy, foreign policy. It's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, one, one last thing I want to get to. Peter raised a very interesting point. What's your take on the or very interesting question? Excuse me. Uh, what's your take on the Green New Deal? Are you asking me? Or you go ahead? Yeah, uh, I mean. That that well, that's his question. So, uh, the the Green New Deal one. There's a lot there, um, but in terms of the idea of American exceptionalism, um, yes, yes, we were we were uh, we are from the United States. Who whoever asked, so that that is uh, that was a question. Born and uh, raised. Born, born and raised. Um, the, the so the the question about kind of about the Green New Deal is all of the things that come along with that uh, really feed into this um, way that the United States could really be that much more exceptional. Mm. Jobs leading the world on uh, climate policy. Uh, essentially retrofitting um, 
fundamentally our entire identity is what is what this, Ugh, this I wish would, this would do. Um, unf I mean, and yeah, I mean, to, I think. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, to an extent, and and to Joe Biden's credit, um, he has at some level adopted some of the some of the things that progressives have put up. Not yeah. not not as much as he should. Uh, but to give him credit, he is adopting some of those things. And just from an international agreement standpoint, beyond climate, entering back into the Paris Climate Accord says uh, that, hey, on all of these international issues, we're willing to come to the table if everyone else is. Right. So, I mean, this is I think the Green New Deal is a perfect, even a better example than coronavirus is for an opportunity created by a crisis in order to rapidly um, industrialize, but in a green way to meet this crisis. Think of it as our World War Two. Right. Climate change is absolutely a national security threat to each and every one of us. Um, and, and you're talking about refugees and migrants. We are going to be seeing refugees and migrants from the United States, from Southern states, from coastal states, from places like California. Refugees are going to be American. They're not going to come necessarily from other countries. But the Green New Deal offers us a blueprint, a blueprint like the actual New Deal did, which said in the face of incredible economic collapse, in the face of massive unemployment and straight up hunger, what are we going to do? We're going to put people to work building infrastructure roads that haven't been retrofitted until today. So Green New Deal says, hey, we are... Uh, we need jobs. We have crumbling infrastructure, roads, bridges, et cetera. Uh, in your house right now, you know, you can't keep heat and you can't keep the cool. I don't know what that is. Let's retrofit our homes. Let's retrofit our buildings. Um, let's have not, you know, uh, transportation, public transportation that is better and faster, more efficient. So it really does lay out this possibility of the ways that maybe we can get back to whatever moment in history we're looking to when we talked about how exceptional we were. And again, this is very much based on how we emerged out of World War II, which was the hegemon on top, helping other countries, et cetera. Um, industrially, as you said, very much advan more advanced than other countries. That's what the Green New Deal is. So it's so ironic that the right wing gets all their panties in a bunch, sorry, about the Green New Deal when in fact, it kind of is the best opportunity toward our American exceptionalism. It's, a, it's like the most America first policy you could ever have without the anti-Semitism. And we'll leave it at that. Francesca, thanks so much uh, for joining the program. And that's all for us today. Uh, you can catch this again on demand. Uh, we also, have this as a podcast uh, later in the week and we'll have uh, you can check out all of American Context's uh, programming at americancontext.substack.com check out Francesca's show News Broke on AJ Plus yay uh, thank you so much Andy thank you and thanks for watching